Let us pray. Lord, once again, we pray that the words of our mouth, the meditation of our hearts, be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, this morning we are going to explore what I consider to be a forgotten corner of the Christmas story. And if you doubt that this is actually forgotten, I just want you to consider this. Whenever we read the Christmas story from Luke chapter 2, we almost always start with verse 1, which says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, etc., etc., etc. And we almost always end with verse 20, where it says, But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, and the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that heard, blah, 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 blah. And then we very conveniently skip over verse 21 so we can get hot-footed over to the story of Simeon and Anna. You know, old folks in the church wanting to see the baby, wanting to hold the baby, wanting to sing songs to the baby. But not today. Because this is a sermon about circumcision. I bet you've never heard a sermon on circumcision Specifically, the circumcision of Jesus. That probably catches your attention a little bit. Wow, a sermon on circumcision. But it's part of the biblical record, and therefore, I think it deserves our perusal. Verse 21, after all, uh, contains a lot of truth that we don't normally associate with Christmas. And here it is. On the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, He was named Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he was conceived. Now, I'm going to do a couple things. I want to kind of unpack this verse and unpack circumcision a little bit for you. And then we'll get to the Lutheran part. You know, what does this mean and what's this got to do with Christmas and what's this got to do with us? A couple of observations about this. First of all, the events take place on the eighth day. It says it right there, on the eighth day. That means counting the day of Jesus' birth, if it was indeed December 25th, which personally I doubt. I think it's somewhere in March or April. That's just me. Jesus was how old? One week old when he was circumcised. Here's the second thing you notice from the text. The rite of circumcision, whether you know it or not, goes all the way back to the Old Testament. It goes back to Genesis chapter 17 when God issues this command to Abraham and says, Abraham, you and now all of your male descendants are to be circumcised. In Genesis 17, it says, every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision. It shall be a sign of the covenant between you and me. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised. There's a third thing you might want to think about. The command of the Lord is still followed to this day by observant Jews. Now, you remember a couple of weeks ago when we had Greg Sabbath here, and Greg talked about how you can't have Christmas without Hanukkah? Well, not only did I baptize Greg some 20 years ago, but when he had his next baby boy, and his baby boy's name was Judah, he asked me if I would like to be part of Judah's Circumcision. I thought, wow, good thing I got a knife. 
That was my first thought. And then I thought, I've never done that before, and I don't know if I want to start doing that. He says, well, no, we have a Messianic Jewish ceremony, and the act of circumcision, many of you know, is called a bris. And bris simply means covenant, and the full term is bris malah, which means, of all things, to cut the covenant. And the bris is still performed to this day on all Jewish children on the eighth day. Now, a bris has two parts. One of them is the actual circumcision of the male child. And the second part is the naming of that baby, given it that his, his, his name. And the person who actually does this is called a moil. And a moil receives some special training, first of all, medically, and how to do a circumcision. And second of all, some various aspects of Jewish law, etc., etc. I want to read to you what a moil does, because somewhere in this service, this is what I did some 20 years ago. The guy says, the ceremony is both joyous and solemn. It's an opportunity for the father and the mother to thank God for their newborn child and to honor their own parents and relatives to participate in this happy occasion. The ceremony begins with the baby being carried into the room on a pillow and carefully placed upon a designated chair. And by the way, the chair has a name. The chair is called Kisa Shel Eliahu, which means the chair of Elijah. And at this point, the moil says some uh, particular Bible verses and has a short prayer. And then the baby is placed on the lap of the sandek. That's the person who holds on to the baby while they actually perform the little bris, the circumcision. And after the circumcision, the little baby is then cuddled. Blessings are recited. The baby is given a Jewish name, put back on that pillow and handed to his mother for a well-deserved meal. The whole ceremony takes but a few minutes. That's what happens. Well, there's four things, fourth thing you can think about in this text. It's impossible to overestimate the importance of circumcision to Jews. It is the most fundamental precept of Jewish religion. It is the ultimate act or symbol of Jewish identity, and it is a means by which a Jewish man enters into the covenant that God made with Abraham, even to this day. There's a fifth thing. Jesus was circumcised. Jesus was circumcised first and foremost. Why? Because he was born a Jew. I don't know if you remember the very first verse of the New Testament. I'm sure most of you got that memorized, right? Matthew 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's the very first verse of the New Testament. Jesus was the ultimate son of Abraham. Number six, the circumcision of Jesus. I don't know whether you know this or not. We don't have a special church service, but this is part of our liturgical calendar. Guess what, Gene? You were raised Lutheran, and I seriously doubt you ever had a day called the Feast of the Circumcision. But if we go by eight days, guess what? January 1st is not bowl day. It is not recover from your hangover day. In the liturgical calendar, I have no idea what color we changed the pyramids to. For some reason, it's probably red, but it's probably white. 
is called, if you look at your liturgical calendar, the Feast of the Circumcision. And if people don't like that and they go, oh, we don't want to call it that, you can call it the Feast of the Holy Name. It's the name we, the day we give Jesus his name. Here's number seven. Although our text does not emphasize it, circumcision was really a very happy time for most everybody other than the little guy, I'm sure. But family and friends gathered around and they celebrated the entry of this little one into the covenant of Abraham and the reception of his Jewish name. The eighth thing is we ought to know is that circumcision did not take place at the, at the temple in Jerusalem. Really? Did you know that? If it didn't take place in Jerusalem at the temple, then where did it take place? And how did they do it without a collar wearing pastor or rabbi? Well, chances are, most likely, Jesus was circumcised where Mary and Joseph were living, following the birth. And more than likely, Joseph himself circumcised his own son. A little bit more about that later. Now, here's number eight. The early church offered two reasons why Jesus was circumcised. Reason number one was to demonstrate his obedience to the laws of God. You may remember that Jesus himself, when he's talking in Matthew chapter 5, said, I did not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but rather I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. It was absolutely necessary for the Lord to fulfill all of that law 100%, to be obedient to all of God's commands. And the first of those commands was circumcision. It also explains why he went through baptism as well. And that's what what Paul means when he gets to Galatians chapter 4, and he says that Jesus was born of a woman, born under the law. There's a second reason here, and that's to prove that Jesus was truly human. Now, one of the heresies that was going around during the days of Jesus was called docetism. Docetism. Well, docetists denied the humanity of Jesus. They just said Jesus was not an honest-to-goodness real man. They said that he only kind of looked like a man, uh, but and that his body was kind of an apparition, or he was a phantasm, or a ghost. Now, I find that particularly funny. Nancy may remember this, but she had to pick out some classes the summer we were married uh, for me to pass <laughs> to be able to stay in school. And she was nice enough to have me take biology and human anatomy and physiology. And what I remember about human anatomy and physiology is you cannot circumcise a ghost. Just passing on useful information. I mean, his circumcision proves that our Lord truly shared our flesh. He was one of us in every sense. Now, Some of you are probably still sitting there and saying, oh, let's talk about circumcision. Come on, Pastor. I mean, he says, I know it's biblical, but for heaven's sakes, it's Christmas. It seems out of place. And, you know, in in, in a sort of sense, it is. And and the reason it seems out of place, and you're not going to like this, but even in the church, even in First Lutheran Church, 
We have domesticated Christmas. We have domesticated it and we have made it beautiful. We have made it safe. We have made it cute. We have made it enjoyable. We have even made it unbiblical. Christmas to us is a happy, fun family time. A good Christian friend of mine the other day posted on Facebook that said, the most important thing about Christmas is family. And I just put a little note on there that says, gee, and I thought it was Jesus. One of us must be wrong. In a few moments, I got a reply, sorry. I'm not so sure how sorry she was. But i got to tell you, the birth of Jesus wasn't anything like the happy, clappy kind of stuff we do at Christmas time. There's nothing fun about a baby being born in what we might call a stable or in the area where animals are kept. There's nothing cute. I seriously doubt that the Christians wanted to put little Izzy in a feeding trough or even little JJ when he's born. You wanted that little kiddo in a nice, comfortable bed. You did not wrap that little baby in rags. You had cute stuff all lined up for that little baby. See, something else happened on the eighth day that was of great significance. After the circumcision, that baby boy got a name. Did you catch it? He got a name. Our text makes three very important uh, points about that. He was named what? Jesus. The angel gave him that name. And the name was given to him before he was ever conceived. Now, today, naming babies is a really big deal. Now, that's why I suggested your last one. I was going to give them the middle initial A. You know, and you just call her Izzy. So, Izzy a Christian. <laughs> it just seemed kind of like a funny thing to me. You guys don't listen to me at all. Um, but today, what did moms and dads do? They buy books. They make lists. They try out various names. I mean, why? Our first, our first, our only son, Eric James Cole, we were going to call him Christopher Andrew until my grandma says, oh, they'll just call him Chrissy. And then there are even people, they look at the kids' names and they make sure they check out all the initials so that the initials don't spell out something really weird. One of my students in high school a long, long time ago, his name was George Oliver Denholm. His initials were what? G-O-D. He said no one ever stole his briefcase <laughs> with those initials. Well, I did a little research, and I, I just hunted up the most popular boys' names in the United States. Here's the top ten boys' names uh, in the last five years. Jacob, Michael, Matthew, Joshua, Christopher, Nicholas, Andrew, Joseph, Daniel, Tyler. Now, it's interesting to note that seven of the ten come directly from the Bible. Nicholas and Christopher actually have biblical roots, and Tyler, well, that's just a city in Texas. <laughs> now, Mary and Joseph did not have to agonize over, what are we going to call the little guy? Because after all, the angel gave him a name, Matthew 1.21. You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So the name Jesus means 
Savior. And actually, the Hebrew version of Jesus is Yeshua or Joshua, which is our grandson. So Joshua equals Jesus equals Savior. His name comes right from the very heart of God. It tells us who he is, why he why he's come, and what he's going to do. Now, here's the question. Is there a connection between his circumcision and his name? Well, absolutely. I mean, think about it. What would it cost Jesus to be the Savior of the world? What would it cost him? Well, it says that we, are, we have taught that he paid for our sins with his own blood. Now, here's a little vital connection. Just, Jesus just one week old, and he enters into the pain and the bloodiness of human existence. Eight days old, and his blood is already being shed. Let me tell you a little story. Once upon a time... There was a man who lived down in the valley who had all these problems, all of these sorrows, and he figured that God must live on the top of the mountain, and so he thought he'd go up to the top of the mountain to see God. So he begins this long, hard journey to the top of the mountain. Little did he know that as he was walking up the mountain, God was walking down the mountain. They literally passed each other on the trail, but he did not recognize God. But when he got to the top of the mountain, he discovered God was not there. And so, extremely disappointed, he turned around. He began descending the mountain, discouraged that he could not find God. When he got back down to the valley, what he found were his same old problems, his same old pains, his same old sorrows. But to his surprise, there was God. What he discovered was that God had left the safety of the mountaintop to seek him out in the midst of his sorrow and his suffering. That's what Jesus did. Now, before I suggested to you that who did the circumcision? Probably Joseph. If this is true, this is also very symbolic. Jesus begins his life by shedding his blood at the hands of his father. And these few drops of blood point to the bloody way that his whole life is going to end. I mean, the infant's cradle is tinged with the crimson reflection of the Redeemer's cross. A number of years ago, I think when I was still at Lord of Life, we were looking at some potential plays for Christmas. And I was looking through one of them. And in the play, as I was kind of reading through, it asked this question, What did Joseph do the day after Jesus was born? What did Joseph do the day after Jesus was born? Now, we assume that on the day he was born, he probably did his very best to take care of Mary and the little baby where they were staying. But what about the next day? Well, the story imagines Joseph being a carpenter, that the very first thing he did was start to make a crib for little baby Jesus. And in this play, as he is, uh, he is doing this, he recalls the celebration that they'd had a few days before with all of the shepherds, and then he kind of wonders out loud to himself, if they treated him like this when he was just a baby, how will they treat him when they find out that he is the Son of God? <laughs> 
And at that exact moment in the play, the lights suddenly go out. And all you can hear is the pounding of a hammer against wood. And then suddenly the lights come on. It's beams on a bloody cross. Now, when I read that, I thought that'd really creep people out on a Christmas Eve at a children's service. We'd have everybody crying and weeping and wondering what on earth happened. That's why we didn't do that one. Instead, I think we did Angels Run Amok. You may remember that play. I saw a Christmas card a couple of years ago to a contemporary card. And you're going to see the first part of it. On the front of this card, a baby's footprints appear on the cover. And under it, it says, unto you is born this day a Savior. But when you open it up, it says, which is Christ the Lord. A grown man's handprint with a bloody hole and spike in his palm. That's really a connection between all of this, friends. I mean, there's a direct line from Jesus' birth to his circumcision all the way to his cross. I mean, circumcision just foreshadows the blood he is going to shed for the sins of the world. And so that leads me to the question, how far is God willing to go? I mean, does it give you any idea about how far he's willing to go? I don't think we can even really imagine the answer to that question. Quite simply, there is no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. Now, at Christmas time, we don't celebrate some God who's kind of aloof and out there somewhere who doesn't really care much about us. Rather, we celebrate the birth of Emmanuel, God with us. We need to remind ourselves and ask ourselves, how far is God willing to go? Well, I would tell all of you here this morning that whatever pit you may feel you're in right now, God is willing to enter that pit with you and meet you there. That's what he did 2,000 years ago. He came into the pit of this world to be with us. He doesn't just stay up in heaven and say, good luck. Hope you all do good down there. He leaves the glories of heaven. He comes all the way down to share our flesh and our blood. He joins us in our pain and in our sadness. Now, what I normally do on Saturday evening is I start proofing my message. I start crossing some things out and making a few changes. When I was proofing the message this last night, I jotted the phrase, to the pain, in the margin. To the pain. And the reason I did that was because it just suddenly dawned on me that Jesus just didn't come down to the earth. He came all the way to the pain. All the way to the pain. He entered our sorrow, or he entered our sadness, he entered our suffering on this earth. I mean, think about it, all the way to the pain. He entered the sorrow, the suffering of life on earth. He was born poor and forgotten. On the eighth day, his blood was already being shed. They called him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And the shadow of the cross followed him everywhere he went. That's not the cute Christmas story that we sometimes tell, is it? 
This is kind of the unvarnished truth of why he came. Jesus, this little baby, was literally born to die. That's what Christmas is really all about. Let's pray. Almighty God, you didn't spare yourself from anything. I'm just absolutely overwhelmed sometimes when I think about what you did to repair that giant gap that our sin brought about. You were not willing that anyone would die. You were not willing that anyone would not be saved. You you were not willing to have it stay that way. And so what you did was decided to send your son, your only son, your son who came all the way to the bottom because that's where we were, that's where we are. As we looked at on Christmas Day, you know, those three things about once you were rich, but you became poor so that we who were poor could become rich. You paid the penalty of the law so that we could be set free. And so each and every day, Father, each and every hour, each and every minute of our life, we give you thanks for Jesus, the Christ, whose birth we much celebrate each and every day as we follow him from the cradle to the cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.